Good morning. I'm Scott, and I'm an elder here at North Shore Church, and it's great to see all of you today. Today I have the privilege of, of giving the scripture reading for today and the prayer. And our scripture reading is going to be from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For those people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men, old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held back by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not... Abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to, to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he, held, <clears throat> that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all that we are and are witness, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and have, have, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's the reading of the word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you with humble hearts. We pray that you would do whatever needed to be done to remove all the distractions from our hearts and minds this morning, that, that you would allow us to come into your presence this morning, that today wouldn't just be an average day, but that you would make today the day that we meet Jesus. 
that we meet him here and that we get a closer relationship with him through the Father. Lord, we come before you in humble submission. We pray that in your humbleness and kindness that you would help us to simply let go of all the fears and worries and, and guilt and disappointment that fill our hearts and minds so often and steal our joy. Fill our hurting soul today, Lord, with your love and peace. Fill the emptiness and the pain so that uh, this often hinders our life with, and replace it with gladness and joy and anticipation for your second coming. Lord, help us to hold every negative thought captive and, and hand it over to you. Help replace those negative thoughts with words of scripture that tell of your great might and wonderful power, Lord. We love you and we ask that you would um, just help, that we, your presence would be here this morning and that you would be in each one of our hearts. As we worship you corporately together as a church, uh, Lord, we just pray that you silence our hearts and minds, that we can get a full flavor of who you are and whose we are. We pray for Pastor Duncan this morning that um, he would deliver your word faithfully. May you be glorified in the preparation that he has done. We pray that, um, that he would only speak the truth in you, the words that you want him to say. Help him to faithfully deliver this truth to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the message, that we can apply it to our lives. And we pray against any spiritual attacks as we uh, get a closer relationship with you. Help us to leave here differently than we came. We pray now for our church family, for those who are going through a tough season in their life. Um, God, we pray for Bob Jersick as he recovers from major surgery. Uh, we pray for this time of healing in the hospital, hospital and then later at home, Lord, that, uh, that this would be a time of peace and rest. We pray for pain management and a full recovery for Bob. We pray for Joe Wells for healing and strength and also for peace and rest. Lord, take away his pain and any new problems that may crop up. And we pray for Barb too, Lord, that, um, that you would give her the strength to, to help Joe as, as he struggles with many health issues. Lord, we pray for Sue Mortensen's mom, Carol, for healing from her surgery and also for pain management. We pray that she comes to know the Lord, Lord. I, God, I just pray that, she, that you would bring her in a closer a clo a relationship with you through this healing. We pray for Pam's sister-in-law who has cancer. We pray that you would help her and help her to, to know who the Lord is, more importantly, Lord. Um, but we ask that you would, would help her and heal her and make her whole. We pray for Mary Balky, Lord, uh, for her broken shoulder. We pray for a quick supernatural healing for that. We pray for Jeff Carhoon uh, for healing and patience as uh, he has extreme temperature fluctuations, Lord. God, we just ask that you come alongside Brother Jeff and, and heal him, Lord. We pray for Allison Shaver's parents who are moving for protection and safety as they do this, uh, as they leave their church home. Lord, I pray that you would guide them and that you would bring them to a place where, where you want them and that, they, um, that you would just keep them in your care. Um, Lord, uh, for a praise report, we thank you for um, the news for Ken Copsey that he didn't need surgery. Um, Lord, praise God. We just thank you for your wonderful deeds and for the answer to prayers. We pray for Brandy with her uh, wrist uh, problem that she has, that you would heal her from that. Um, God, we just pray that you'd comfort and heal any others that are going through storms of life right now in this imperfect world on this side of heaven. We pray for an uh, abundant um, mission, that, um, that you would continue to do your mighty works uh, in the lives of everyone there, Lord. And we pray that you would guide Teresa as she, and give her strength as she continues to steer the ship for um, the abundant mission. 
Um, with God, we pray for unity in all of our other ministries, that you would be glorified through our small groups and our children's program and mercy ministry, ministry our building team. Uh, God, we just thank you for everything that you're doing here at North Shore Church. Lord, none of it is done without you. We are not capable of doing that. Thank you for your almighty power. We pray for revival in our cities and our churches. Lord, we need you, Father, more than we ever have before. Um, Lord, please come speak to us. Please give us peace. Uh, give peace to the countries that are at war and heal their land, Lord, that much good could come from this terrible situation. Bring salvation to people as they cry out for you, Lord. Um, God, we just pray that you restore, uh, as these wage, wars wage on, we pray that you would help and rebuild and restore. Finally, Lord, help us to focus on you and how blessed we are, that you have given us so much, none of which we deserve. May our hearts be content, not just today, but every day of our lives. On Christ, the solid ground we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're still in Acts. Big surprise there, huh? <clears throat> we're making our way, actually, in chapter 2 of the text that you just heard. Peter's first sermon, right after the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. What instigated the sermon, which you may have picked up from the reading, is on a human level, the Jews who were in town for Pentecost, which was a Jewish holiday, they hear the sound of the rushing wind coming from heaven, and they see these people, these other Jews from Galilee, speaking in a language about the mighty works of God, in a language they could not have known, and so they're wondering. And so Peter stands up and says, this is what is going on here. He tells them that the cause of these obviously supernatural demonstrations was that God was making an epically important point in salvation history. Though these Jews didn't know it at the time, the coming of the Spirit of God was even more important than the giving of the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. That's because with the coming of the Spirit, the time in salvation history when you serve God through law-keeping under the Old Covenant had now been replaced by serving God through the Holy Spirit, by faith, under the terms of the new covenant in Christ. Last week we saw that the, the coming of the Spirit was the fulfillment of the new covenant promises by prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Peter announces that this event signals the beginning of the last days. And to prove from the Bible just how important this event is in salvation history, he quotes from the prophet Joel, and you heard that quotation. So Peter is saying what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2, what we know to be Joel, that's what's happening right now. After Peter cites Joel's prophecy to give a summary of what will mark this new age of the Spirit, he launches into the heart of his message, beginning here in verse 22. Now, normally, in a history book like Acts, we would take larger chunks of text for our message. But this morning, we want to spend all of our time in just three 
verses in this section. And the reason for that is because these three verses reveal some of the most important theology in the Bible when it comes to how God relates to sinful fallen humanity. So let's read just these three verses, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the three truths that we're going to be looking at, one for each one of these verses, is number one, Jesus, though doing the works of God, had come, had to come and die as a man. Point one. Point two, Jesus' death was the result of God's plan to use the greatest sin imaginable to accomplish his greatest redemptive works. And number three, Jesus could not possibly have been defeated by the power of death. The first truth is in verse 22, and that is Jesus, though doing the works of God, had to come and die as a man. As soon as Peter explains the awesome significance of Pentecost in salvation history, he turns to the one at the very center of all of redemptive history, Jesus Christ. Verse 22 again, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now, it is obviously self-evident to all of these Jews that Jesus is a man. Peter, however, makes a point of explicitly mentioning that, and when the scripture explicitly mentions something that is self-evidently true, there's a reason for it. Jesus is a man from Nazareth. The reason it's important is because, at least in part, Jesus had to be a man in order to accomplish his mission. We know that any biblical understanding of Christ, or what theologians would call a Christology, teaches that Jesus has two natures. He's fully divine, he has a fully divine nature, he's fully God, and he has a fully human nature. So he's also fully man. He's fully God and fully man. And those were essential in order for him to complete his mission to pay for the sins of God's people. Jesus had to come as the God man, because only an infinite God could bear upon himself all the sins committed by God's people. Because God is infinite, that means that all sins committed against him demand infinite consequences, the infinite wrath of God. We know that only God could receive the infinite wrath of God on the cross for our sin. So the one who died on the cross for our sins had to be God. But, as Peter brings out here in this sermon he's preaching, Jesus was also a man because he had to be a man. This is because, as we know, it was Adam as the founder and head of the human race who plunged humanity into sin and placed us under the judgment of God. Because sin was thoroughly and completely caused by a man, the only way God and his court of justice could remove the sin was through humanity, a man, 
That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the last Adam. Romans chapter 5 also parallels Adam and Jesus. Paul says in verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. But Jesus, of course, was a unique man. Of course, in many senses, Peter says that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Now, we need to back up just for a minute here to see the larger point that Peter is making. Why does he go into this? Because Peter is in the midst right here of constructing his prosecution, his case against these people for what they did to Jesus. As we see in so many of the sermons in Acts, the preacher boldly exposes, he shines the light brightly on the sin of the hearers. These fishermen, in many cases, are boldly speaking the word of God, pointing out the sin. This is not a seeker-sensitive message here, nor are any of the messages in the book of Acts. Peter is building a case for the prosecution against his ears to establish for them the truth that they are sinners of the worst kind. As he begins his case by reviewing that this man from Nazareth was a man who clearly they knew was sent from God. God had attested as his servant through many mighty wonders and works and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. See, he's getting right in their face. He's poking them in the chest here. Jesus didn't do his ministry in secret. He did it for all to see. And Peter wants them to know that God had placed his unmistakable seal of approval on him, and you knew that. That tells us something important. We saw last week that many of these people that were here at Pentecost were here as visitors from all over the Roman Empire. And so Peter asserts here, and no one contradicts his assertion, that all of these people knew who Jesus was, that he did miracles, and that these miracles clearly set him apart as being sent by God. Now the fact that Peter can say this obviously without fear of contradiction, means that Jesus was not some obscure figure who was known only around the backwaters of Galilee. Though that was the central hub of his ministry, Peter here is revealing that Jews across the empire had heard about him. If not in person, perhaps when they visited Jerusalem for one of these three feasts, and Jesus was in Jerusalem during those times, teaching and doing his miracles, or they'd at least heard about him by the word of mouth. Jesus was a big deal among the Jews. And so Peter boldly claims that they all knew he was sent from God, as you yourselves know. As we move to verse 23, Peter gives one of the most helpful and illuminating, and to some maddening truths in Scripture about the relationship between, on the one hand, the sovereignty of God, that is, God's complete control over everyone, including our sin, and on the other, the responsibility or the culpability of sinners for their sin. Peter says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands 
of lawless men. Now, in only a few words here, Peter doesn't know it, but he expresses truths that for centuries would send theologians scurrying to their cubicles to write thousands of pages in an attempt to explain what he just said. Now, the point Peter making here is not hard. Uh, it's quite clear, actually. In fact, for many, it's been all too clear. We could restate his point like this. Jesus' death was the result of God's plan to use the greatest sin imaginable to accomplish his greatest redemptive works. Peter makes two points here about the crucifixion of Jesus. First, the crucifixion of Christ was God's idea because it was part of his plan. And second, sinful humans bear complete and total responsibility for it. Now, if you can feel a bit of the tension between those true truths, then you're sensing why so much ink has been spilled on these two truths, and many others like them in the Bible. First, the crucifixion was God's idea and was part of his plan. Peter says that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Peter wants everybody to know here that not only did God know in advance that his son would be crucified, that's this foreknowledge piece of information he communicates, the reason he foreknew it was going to be happening was because it was according to the definite plan of God. This plan was definite. He puts a descriptor in there for a reason. That is, it was deliberate. The many details comprised of this plan were spelled out by God in advance. These would include the specific players involved, the circumstances, the time, the date, all of it. It was his definite plan. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus acknowledged it. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Okay? So Jesus knew in real time, as he walked through the events of his passion, as Satan entered into Judas, as Herod mocked him, as the Jews cried, crucify him, crucify him, as Pilate cowardly sold him down the river, as the soldiers abused him and divided up his garments, he knew that all of that was according to to the definite plan of God. Nothing was left to chance, and we know that because so many of the details of his passion had been prophesied with breathtaking specificity. Jesus would be pierced. He would die with criminals. He would speak certain specific phrases while he was on the cross. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. All of those details and many, many more had been meticulously predicted by the prophets. All of that is because, as Peter says here, it was according to the definite plan of God. The crucifixion was God's idea. Isaiah 53, 4 says, The suffering servant of God was smitten by God and afflicted. It was God who smote Jesus on the cross. Later in verse 10 of the same chapter, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God the Father crushed the Son, Jesus, on the cross. That's very clear. But Peter also labors to communicate that sinful human beings bear complete and 
total responsibility for this. Again, it's hard to imagine how he could have been more clear on this point. He says this about Jesus to these Jews. You crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. So Peter makes this a matter of corporate guilt among the Jews because he says to all these Jews, you killed him. Not just Ananias and Caiaphas, you killed him. The sin of the Jews is unique in its depravity because they not only killed a man who was sent by God to them with this multiple attestation, Peter will declare later in the sermon, he was also their Messiah. So he's saying to these Jews that the guilt for the murder of their long-awaited national hero, their Messiah, the guilt belonged to them. They killed Jesus. And he clarifies that they used other men to actually perform the, the details of the crucifixion. He calls these people lawless men, which simply means that they were men who were not under the law. They were Gentiles. So Peter, in, in the most blunt terms imaginable here, indicts these Jews for killing their own Messiah by using the hands of Gentile men to nail him to a Roman cross. And that, of course, raises a fairly important theological question, which is, how can God hold people responsible for being part of his sovereign plan that could not be broken? Many people over the centuries, in church and outside of church, have argued that if you're part of God's inescapable plan, God cannot possibly hold you responsible for your part in it. You have no choice. Therefore, God will not hold you responsible. Well, that argument sounds reasonable on some level until you test it with the scriptures. Because nowhere in the Bible is that argument made or implied. And it's soundly contradicted by many, many texts. We see this in many places. God unmistakably holds people responsible for the sins they commit in the midst of their participation in his sovereign plan. Now, one example I gave you is from the night that Jesus was betrayed. But I only gave you half the verse. Luke 22, 22, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Okay? So the Son of Man will die because God has determined he's going to die. But Jesus finishes the verse speaking about Judas and says, But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you hear? It's the same dynamic again. Jesus clearly has no problem holding Judas responsible, even promising the curse of God on him, woe to that man, for his part in God's predetermined plan to kill him. Just like Peter does in Acts 2.23, Jesus seems to have missed the fact that you can't hold people responsible for playing a sinful role in a plan that God had predestined would occur. And if we think, or we're tempted to think, that verse 23 here in chapter 2 is some sort of anomaly, all we have to do is go two chapters further in chapter 4, where the people of God, the church, are praying together, and here's what they pray about the cross in 427. They pray, for truly in this city there were gathered together Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do 
whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Same thing. This is even more difficult than Peter's words, because in chapter 2, at least there, Peter says it was the hand of the Romans who crucified Jesus. Here, as the church is praying, they completely eliminate all the human agents, and they pray, your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place, or predestined to take place. So based on these two crystal clear, repeated examples, it seems that the apostles feel a need to put together these two seemingly irreconcilable truths of God's sovereign plan and human responsibility for sin. On the one hand, you have the human responsibility for the death of Jesus, clearly unhesitatingly placed on Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel in 427. But on the other... It's clear that they were doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This implies and reveals a larger biblical truth, and that is that God governs everything, including sin, for his glory. Because Peter reveals here that God planned the sin of the killing of the Son of God. It's been stated many times that to make sense of the Bible in these instances where God's relationship to sin is described, you have to have a category in your mind where God can ordain that sin will happen without he himself sinning. If he's sovereign over everything, including sin, he's ordaining it, but he's not sinning. You have to have that category in your mind dozens of places in the Bible. We see this again and again. Uh, God's ordaining of sin without him being guilty of sin. Perhaps the most famous Old Testament example, and again, there are many to choose from, is seen in the great redemptive act in the Old Testament, specifically the Exodus, specifically how God used Pharaoh in the Exodus. You may recall that after God calls Moses to confront Pharaoh on his behalf, he relocates him off the backside of Midian into Egypt. And as Moses is journeying back to Egypt, God is giving him his marching orders. And we read in Exodus 4.21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, it's very clear that on the one hand, God's will was that Pharaoh let his people go. Exodus 8.1 says, just before the second plague, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they might serve me. And does God hold Pharaoh responsible for not letting the Jews go? Well, he sends eight plagues on them. So it's also clear that God is sovereignly acting on Pharaoh by ordaining that he sin against him for the purpose of demonstrating his wonders to his people and the Egyptians. Now, what these kind of texts show us is, as theologians have said for centuries, that God has two Wills, And I promise you that's not theological double talk. Whether it's Pharaoh or the crucifixion of Christ, God has two 
wills. Now, what I mean by this is, on the one hand, God obviously sees the crucifixion of his son as the greatest sin ever committed, because contrary to every other act of injustice ever committed, Jesus was innocent. That means that sin exists, this sin exists in a class by itself. So it's clear that the crucifixion of Jesus was, in myriad ways, a violation of God's own expressed will in his law, beginning with, thou shalt not kill. Don't do that. But as we've seen, his crucifixion was also the result of the definite plan of God. So it was God's will. God clearly has two wills here, doesn't he? Theologians call the first expression of his will God's will of command. He commands, let my people go. He commands, thou shalt not kill. But there's also what theologians call God's will of decree. In other words, this transcendent will that's over and above everything. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and the Son of Man will go as it has been determined. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to throw up our hands and walk away and, and, and say this is all terribly theological and abstract and, and, and not practical, and I would beg you not to do that. First of all, because this dynamic is seen all over the Bible, you're going to run into it again and again now that you've had some exposure to it, if you haven't already. And second, because we are also guilty of having two wills. Any parent knows this conundrum. No good parent enjoys disciplining their child. It's very difficult to intentionally bring grief on your child. You children, you need to know this. It's very difficult for parents to intentionally bring grief on you. But no good parent refuses to do that, as grievous as it may be. On the one hand, we have our first will, don't discipline, it's very unpleasant to both the parent and the child. But on the other, our will is, I want my children to grow up to be responsible adults, so I will discipline them. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled these two seemingly opposing truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and he said, well, I don't, because I don't reconcile friends. Though he may not be able to put all this together, and we may not be able to put all this together, no theologian claims to be able to totally understand, much less be able to explain all of this. But it's clear from Scripture that our limited understanding is not a problem for God. And it's clearly not a problem for Peter or the many biblical authors who repeatedly and unapologetically bring these two things together without apology. God sovereignly governs all things, including things involving sin, without himself being guilty of sin, and when people are part of that plan, they're responsible for the sin, not God. The final truth is in verse 24. Peter here gives his first public witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is going to play a central role in all apostolic preaching from this time forward. He wants these Jews to know that the crucifixion of Jesus was not the final chapter of the story. He says of Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now the point Peter is making here in how he words this is Jesus could not possibly have been defeated by the power of death. 
This phrase, the pangs of death, is vivid here, and it refers to things attendant to a person's death. First, it includes the pain or the agony of death. This word pangs is used elsewhere to describe the agony associated with childbirth. There is an agony, there is a spiritual pain or agony accompanying death that Jesus, uniquely among all the people who came before him, did not suffer. Jesus did not suffer. But this word also carries the notion of the spiritual restraining and enslaving power of death. Literally, this word can be translated ropes or cords of Sheol that hold people in the grave. One commentator renders this verse, death was not able to encircle Jesus and hold him in its painful grip. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, where death is revealed as being much more than simply a biological state. It is that. It's the cessation of bodily functions. We know when to pronounce someone dead because their function functions have stopped. But death in Scripture is also revealed as a spiritual power, okay? God warned Adam that death was the penalty for sin, and he says in Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So death is primarily a spiritual condition that results in biological consequences, this is why it's so foolish for people who have themselves frozen. <laughs> at, you know, you ever heard about this? They get cryogenically frozen because someday they're going to come up with a cure to cancer and I'm going to be rethought and they're going to make me better. These people don't understand death at all. They don't understand. This is a spiritual reality. This is not just biological. These people are going to get thawed out and they're not going to be alive. <laughs> When people die, the ultimate cause of death is not cancer, it's not heart disease. Those are just the means by which God executes his penalty for our sin. Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the spiritual payment that all sinners must render for their sin. All of us sinners have a debt to pay to death. And unless Jesus comes back before we die, death will most certainly collect its debt from us. So when sinners lie in their grave, they're literally held down in death by the spiritual power of death. It's a power so real that Peter uses the metaphor of cords or ropes to describe it. Those cords are our sin, and they hold us fast in the power of death. But what Peter's implying here is that Jesus, because he had no sin, had no spiritual cords, no ropes to hold him down in death. Jesus, as one commentator said, didn't owe death a single penny, which means that the power of death, sin, was not present and therefore couldn't keep him in the grave. That's the point that Peter is making when he says that God loosened the pangs of death. Every other person is spiritually welded into the grave by the power of sin. But in Jesus' case, the cords of death 
laid loosely and harmlessly across his body, and he rose up from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death. And the good news for believers is that though the power of sin can hold us in the grave for a while, for the believer, death is a temporary state. If you're on your deathbed, and you're moments away from expiration, and you're still conscious, it would be theologically accurate for you to say, I'm going to die for a while. Though we're sinners, we're also saints, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And when at the resurrection Jesus calls us from the grave, sin will have lost its hold on these bodies because they're going to be transformed. So the power of sin is destroyed by Jesus at the cross, and the cords of death will harmlessly slip from us, and we will experience that liberation and follow Jesus in his resurrection. Paul writes in the resurrection chapter, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, when this transformation occurs, then shall come to pass that the saying is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when those bodies are changed, there's no more sin in that body, which means that the cords can't hang on to anything, and we go right up. At the resurrection, the victory over death purchased on the cross by Jesus for believers will be made manifest. The sting of death will be removed. Do we think about this? Do you glory in this truth? This is the blessed hope of the believer. Do we spend time meditating about this and rejoicing in it? And frankly, do we also think of the other side of the coin about the pitiful people we know every day who will die apart from Christ and who will be held fast in their graves by the power of sin until God chooses to raise them up for the purpose of sentencing them to a second death? a final death in hell. If you're here today as a believer, you need to spend some time thinking and rejoicing over the fact that by the sheer unmerited grace of God, those cords will not be keeping you down when Jesus calls your name out of the tomb. Rejoice in that. Allow that to motivate you to tell others about the gospel who are right now enslaved by the power of sin and law and who apart from the saving grace of God will never in all eternity be able to pay off the eternal debt they owe for their sin. If you're here today and you don't know for certain that your sins are forgiven and that your debt has been paid by Jesus, you need to come to Christ. You need to come and cry out to God that you know you're a sinner and you know that your only hope for pardon is Jesus Christ. Give up on your puny efforts to be good enough for him and come to Jesus Christ who can pay the debt you owe. You can be liberated from the enslavement of both the penalty of sin and the power of sin and you too can rise in the resurrection and be with Jesus forever. May God grant to all of us the grace to know Jesus to live for him and to die for him in the freedom that he purchased at Calvary for us, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy and wonderful truths. 
And I pray, God, that you would cause us to think much about them. Because, Father, information alone doesn't change anybody. Information puffs up if we don't spend time meditating on it and turning it into worship. And so, God, I pray that you would make us people who worship because of the knowledge that you've given to us. Father, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would enable them to see themselves held in the grave, unable to ever get up, destined for eternal penalty, destined to pay forever a debt they can never repay against a, a God against whom whose sin is infinite and it will never be paid. And God, we just pray that you'd give us a heart, a heart that would break for sinners, a heart that would pour itself out, a heart that would jeopardize relationships, a heart that would be bold like Peter is here, full of the Holy Spirit, to speak to them in love about Jesus who's come to die for people just like them. Father, we pray that as we go to the table that you would enable us to remember these things in a precious way and that you would change us through them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.